even on a study of several different psalms, focusing on what do these psalms have to do with our work, our occupation, our, our daily duty as um, we go about the business of our jobs. And so we are on the fifth week in this study, and we're looking at Psalm 34. Um, Job 12.12 says, Wisdom is with the aged, and understanding is in the length of days. Wisdom is with the aged, and understanding is in the length of days. And I think that we would all agree that... um, Life brings you lessons, right? That we, we all, as we go through life, you, you learn. Um, you, you have ups and you have downs. You have good times. You have bad times. But in it all and through it all, <clears throat> you learn your lesson a lot of times. Not all the time, but a lot of times. And I think that we in this group are further, far enough along in life to say that we have uh, learned some, some valuable lessons. Now, for several years, I worked with Uh, students, uh, middle school and high school students. And you know, when you're working with students, they ultimately don't have that much life experience. Now, they've sinned, and they've messed up, and they've done things they haven't, they ought not do, and, and, and different things like that. But if you're looking at a 12, 13, 14, 15, 16, 17 year old, you've got plenty of opportunity to really mess up. But they, they just don't have a whole lot of life experience, you know? But then you enter college, and you enter into young adult life, then you get a real job, then you enter the, the real world, and then you uh, have to start paying your taxes, and you get bills, and you just, you just kind of learn lessons as you experience life. Um, several years ago, I was doing student ministry here at the church, full-time, it was my job, and um, I started researching uh, a different model of how to do student ministry. And I got really excited about it. And I started sharing this model with other people. Like, well, what if we did things a little differently around here? Maybe it would be more effective. And I was talking to different people in my um, circles that were also doing youth ministry in different parts of the country. And um, they were saying, yeah, I've heard of this. And we've started doing this too. And, we, and so. I started kind of really investing myself in this kind of really, what I thought was a really cool idea. And um, really putting a lot into it. And I was getting some traction. And a lot of people thought, well, that is a good idea. Maybe you should start you know, changing things up and implementing it and, and, and switching the direction a little bit. And I started doing that. And uh, through the course of time, um, my plan really got some enemies. Some people didn't like the plan. And, you know, we're not talking about it. We're not talking about theology here. You know, we're not talking about heresy, but just, you know, in philosophy of ministry, there are some people who are really, really against it and were really, really against me. And um, some feelings got hurt. Um, my plan got shut down and I was pretty ticked off about it. Um, uh, some arms were twisted and uh, um, I let some seeds of bitterness kind of plant in my heart, and um, I had a bad attitude, and um, I kind of held the, in, in sin, held 
some angst against some people because I thought, you know what, they're ruining God's plan. <laughs> you know, you know, this is this is how we can do this better. You know, and I want I want to charge forward. And this is for the kingdom, and you don't like that, and blah 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 blah, and um, and it fell it fell apart. You know, the whole thing screeched to a halt, and they said we don't want to do that. We're not shelving it. We're trashing it. We're going to go back to the to the to the old plan, and uh, that's what we did. And um, I handled the situation poorly. I handled it poorly in public with some people, but I also handled it very poorly in my own heart. I mean, I was a believer. Um, and, and I'll be honest. I honestly believe that it, it was a good plan that wasn't flawed. Um, but throughout the course of time, it became very clear to me that it was not God's plan. That's the difference. You see what I'm saying? Um, I was convinced that it was an excellent plan, and, and think, I really do think it was an excellent plan to this day, but it wasn't God's plan. And as if you unroll the story, and I'm not going to go into all the details, this was way before I even met Lauren, but as this plan unfolded, and as God started to break me down and said, Danny, you don't understand why this thing's being trashed. You don't. But you need to understand that I'm in control. All right? you, Danny, you don't understand... Um, how I'm going to use this in the future, but you need to understand that I'm in control. Danny, you need to understand that you aren't the one who controls the future of the student ministry of all the world or, or even East Cooper Baptist Church. I'm the one who's doing the work in the ministry of my church here. Danny, you don't understand um, how I'm going to teach you and train you and humble you and show you how you need to learn through this situation. Because ultimately, I remember specifically telling myself um, what I was trying to push this plan along, that it was going to take a lot of work from me. And so much work that um, I anticipated myself having to really kind of work overtime, whatever you want to call it, for the next couple years to make sure that this really get to where I, I wanted it to go. And it fell apart. It didn't work. We went back to the original plan. And I point, right now, I point my finger as this plan falling through being incredibly instrumental in me meeting my wife. And so it's one of those things that was, was devastating at the time for me because I was taking it personally. I thought that they were attacking me and that they were shutting down God's plans and that I, I had this vision of what God was going to do through this ministry at East Cooper Baptist Church. And as I walked through it, God taught me some incredible life lessons about himself, about sovereignty, about surrender and that God has a bigger plan because I never ever at the time as a single guy doing youth ministry thought that this in my opinion this crash in my occupation you know this crash in my job was going to lead me to the, one of the greatest joys of my life in my life and it's like you, you know you, 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 you go back and you look on it and you're like I wish I would have handled myself differently. <laughs> you know, I wish I wish I would have taken the things because I knew all the Bible verses. You know, I knew God is sovereign, and I even had my boss speaking into me. He's like, Danny, I don't understand either why this is getting shot down. You know, I don't understand why people are against this. Danny, I don't know why why this is happening. Those people shouldn't have said things that way. But he also told me, Danny, you, you shouldn't be responding that way. And he said, Danny, um, we need to understand that God is at work here, even though we don't see it. And it was a valuable life lesson learned that now, five, six, seven years past, I look back on that situation and see, whoa, God was at work, and I never saw it. He was at work 
Thing, I thought things were crashing, and he was working. God has a bigger plan, even when I don't see it. So, life brings us lessons. And, and I couldn't ha- I, my, my walk with Christ is different because of that experience. I, I walk with more, I thought that I was living a surrendered life then, and I'm living more of a surrendered life now. I've still got places to learn, places to grow, but God taught me life lessons. And life brings you those lessons that you look back, even on your sin, even on your failures, even on those times when you're like, boy, you know, I blew it. I was a Christian, but I still handled that poorly. I still let that get way under my skin. I still really mistreated those people. I still really had uh, bitterness in my own heart, and it really just ate my lunch. and kind of rotted my walk with Christ for a little while. But you look back on those things and say, God was good. He walked me through it. He taught me things, and I can take that now and use it in my current walk with Christ and even share it with others and say, listen, even though now you are going through a crash, even though now things are falling apart, even though maybe you are right in this situation and it's still falling apart, that that God is using that. And he is sovereign, and he is the one who has this whole plan. You don't know how it's going to fit together. I met Lauren. You know, I I met my wife. As a result of this falling apart and me just not being so consumed, I didn't see that coming. But I wholeheartedly believe that God had that in the string of events that led us together. David is the author of this psalm. Now, one of the things that we have said over the last couple weeks, that there are several psalms that do not have a chain link to a specific circumstance okay so if you're reading in the new testament and you're reading in the book of ephesians like we studied a little while ago we can see the chain link that paul had when he was writing specifically to the ephesians in that situation and that's why he was writing uh the book to them specifically now what can we learn from that so there are several psalms throughout the book of psalms that don't have a link but are uh, principles and truths that have broad applications. All right, so this psalm that we're looking at here has a broad application, but it also has a chain link to a certain situation in David's life, which not all psalms do. Okay, so if we look at the intro to Psalm 34, in the ESV it simply says this, and this is right, it should be in everybody's Bible right before uh, verse 1. It says, of David, meaning by David. When he changed his behavior before Abimelech, so that he drove him out and he went away. All right, so that doesn't really seem to tell us a whole lot. This is a story that's found in 1 Samuel chapter 21, verse 10. So before we jump into Psalm 34, I want us to get the background a little bit. All right, so flip back to 1 Samuel chapter 21, verse 10. I'll read it. Psalm 21, verse 10. I'm going to read 10 through 15, which is the end of the chapter. And David rose and fled that day from Saul and went to Achish, the king of Gath. And the servants of Achish said to him, Is not this David the king of the land? Did they not sing to one another of him in dances? Saul has struck down his thousands, and David his ten thousands. And David took these words to heart, and was much afraid of Achish, the king of Gath. 
So he changed his behavior before them and pretended to be insane in their hands and made marks on the doors of the gate and let his spittle run down his beard. Then Akish said to his servants, Behold, you see the man is mad. Why then have you brought him to me? Do I lack madmen that you have brought this fellow to behave as a madman in my presence? Shall this fellow come into my house? Now the beginning of Psalm 34 says Abimelech. This says Akish. Abimelech is a term similar to Pharaoh, okay, which is a broad. Abimelech was like uh, the king. Akish was the specific name. Abimelech was more the broad name. Um, so what's going on in the story here? Uh, David is not yet king of Israel. All right? He is younger. If you went to Sunday school growing up, or if you know your Old Testament, we know that David um, was anointed king, but was not placed to be king immediately. Right now in this story, Saul is king, and he wants to kill David. All right? He tried to pin David to the wall with a spear, literally. All right? David was playing his harp, took a spear, threw it at him, and tried to kill him in his place. At this point in the story, David has already killed Goliath. We've heard the story of David and Goliath, right? And so David has notoriety among the people of Israel. And they have sung the song that is referenced here in uh, 1 Samuel that says, Saul has struck down his thousands and David his ten thousands. So you can see why there might be some jealousy, right? Right With Saul, is people are like, wait a minute. Saul's like, I'm, I'm the king, but the people are, are praising and lauding him. So he wants to kill him in, in a pretty gory way, pinning him to the wall. So David has already killed Goliath. Uh, David is in the court of Saul. David is best friends with Saul's son, Jonathan. And uh, Saul starts this uh, rage and this rant against David and wants to kill him. So David runs away. David flees for his life. He takes nothing with him. And in the story right before this incident here in, in, in Goth, uh, as David is fleeing from Saul, David actually um, runs to another city called Nob. And he goes into a synagogue or temple there and runs into a priest. And he says to the priest, I'm here on the king's business. Um, I had to run uh, in haste, it was urgent. Um, and I'm, I'm, I'm on my way somewhere else. Uh, do you have food for me? And the priest says, why well, I do, but it's been dedicated. And they go through this rigmarole of, are you pure? Are you able to take the dedicated food? He says, yes, I am. He takes the food. And then he says to the uh, priest, um, I have no weapon. Do you have anything here? Lo and behold, the priest says, the only weapon that we have is the sword of Goliath. You know the story of Goliath, right? He's nine feet tall, massive sword. So he gives David the sword of Goliath. So David takes this sword, and then he runs to Goth, which is the story that we just read. Now, Goth is a city that is uh, not uh, an, an Israelite city. It's a, it's a Philistine city. Goliath was a Philistine, right? Um, they're the bad guys. All right? They're at war with the Philistines. Why is David all by himself? with the sword of their hero <laughs> running to God. Um, and the text doesn't tell us. Uh, some commentators say he's just looking for refuge. Some people say maybe he's trying to um, just blend in with the crowd and just serve as a mercenary because he's ultimately a soldier and maybe he can make, make do. And so he comes into the king of, uh, of Goth 
and the king doesn't recognize him as David, the Philistine slayer, the guy who chopped off the head of our hero, even though he's carrying the sword. But there's a, a, a attempt or a uh, an official at the at the uh, palace here who does recognize him. He says, "Isn't isn't this David?" And so David freaks out at this moment, and he gets scared for his life, and so he. He really does something rather cowardly um, and, uh, and pretends to be insane and starts scratching and maybe cocking himself off to the side and letting drool come down his beard and speaking gibberish. And the king just says, who is this? Get, the, get this out of my sight. You know, this is David, the Goliath slayer. Get him out. And he, uh, he deceives him, and he goes about. I mean, this doesn't sound real high and mighty and righteous, does it, for the, the King David? So David then uh, flees to another town. Meanwhile, Saul catches wind that David had gone to Nob and spoken to the priest there. So Saul, angry, wanting to kill David, travels to Nob, and kills all 86 priests at the temple, wipes them out, and their fam- any families and livestock that happen to be there as well. Even though they were unaware, he kills them all. You go along in the story, and Saul is chasing David with his armies all over. Saul is hiding in caves wherever he can, and uh, in, in chapter 24... Um, Saul, is, is th- at this point, has gathered a few followers and is hiding from Saul. What did I say? Saul. David, hiding from Saul. Uh, thank you, Shep. Um, David is hiding from Saul in a, a cave. Saul is roaming around with the armies, seeking him out, trying to kill him. And uh, Saul is a man, and uh, he has to go to the bathroom. Uh, Chapter 24 says that he enters into a cave to relieve himself. And he walks in there by himself, which a king wasn't often by himself. Um, Exposed himself, as anybody would, who is sitting down to use the bathroom. And and David and his few men are in the back of the cave. And his men are like, the Lord has delivered Saul into your hands. Now is the time. Take his life. This man wants to kill you. This man is evil. What have you done, David? What have you, David, what have you done? This is your opportunity. This chance does not come, come often. Now is the chance for you to take his life. David says, no, I won't do it. But he crawls up to him without him noticing and cuts off a piece of his robe as proof that I spared your life, Saul. Saul leaves the cave, goes down with his men. David comes out of the cave and says, Saul, 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 why are you chasing me? What have I done to deserve this? Why, why do you want my life? So, I, I, haven't, I, haven't, I haven't done anything against you. Look, I could have taken your life. Um, but he says... In uh, chapter 24, verse 8, Afterward, David also rose and went out of the cave, and he called out after Saul, My Lord, the king, in respect, 
When Saul looked behind him, David bowed with his face to the earth, and he paid homage. And David said to Saul, Why do you listen to the words of men and say, Behold, David seeks you harm? Behold, this day your eyes have seen how the Lord gave you today into my hand in the cave. And some told me to kill you, but I spared you. I said, I will not put out of my hand against my Lord, for he is the Lord's anointed. See, my father, see the corner of your robe in my hand. For by the fact that I cut off the corner of your robe and did not kill you, you may know and see that there is no wrong or treason in my hands. I have not sinned against you, though you hunt my life to take it. May the Lord judge between me and you, and may the Lord avenge me against you, but my hand shall not be against you. This is pretty noble, isn't it? It seems like David here is really kind of swinging from good to bad. You know, he really starts off by lying to the priest, uh, and then somehow stumbling into the enemy's courts, and then feigning in cowardice, in insanity. Um, but then as he runs, he still trusts that the Lord God Almighty has put an authority in place over him, even though he's trying to kill him, and he still bows down and pays homage to him and says, I will not go against the hand of the Lord because the Lord has made you king and not me. I mean, it's just crazy. So this is the whole story leading up to David writing Psalm 34. So with that as the lead, let's look at Psalm 34. Psalm 34 is cut into... Uh, in the half, there are two parts. And the first half is um, a song of praise that David is singing. And the second half is a song of instruction given to people for people to learn the same life lessons that David himself has learned. But it begins with a psalm of praise, which is 1 through 10. So let's look at Psalm 34, 1 through 10. It says this, I will bless the Lord at all times. His praise shall continually be in my mouth. My soul makes its boast in the Lord. Let the humble hear and be glad. O oh, magnify the Lord with me and let us exalt his name together. I sought the Lord and he answered me and delivered me from all my fears. Those who look to him are radiant and their faces shall never be ashamed. This poor man cried, and the Lord heard him and saved him out of all his troubles. The angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear him, and he delivers them. O oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. O oh, fear the Lord, you his saints, for those who fear him have no lack. The young lions suffer want and hunger, but those who seek the Lord lack no good thing. So this first half of Psalm 34 has three stanzas, as you can see. It's broken up in your text right there in front of you. The first stanza is really a, a stanza of praise. It starts off with, with King David looking back on this situation that has happened in his past, and he is singing a song of praise. Here, these words speaking from a man at this point forward, where David is able to look back on his life and see the ways that God has delivered him, see the sins that he has committed in his life, and that he is building this resolve that we see in the form of praise in verses 1, 2, 3, and 4. 
excuse me, one, two, and three, that he is building resolve from this point forward based on the past and based on life experiences. So even though he's blown it, even though he has done things he ought not have done, even though he has done things that are, are, are shameful and deceitful and sinful, that he is able to say, God, you have shown me things, you have shown me my way, you have shown me that you're good, and you have worked in spite of me that you are still good, and I will praise you. You know, I look back at, at that time in my life when things were crashing, and I struggled with confidence and insecurity, and like, what am I doing, and why am I doing this, and why I thought this was the way to go, and this was supposed to be the best thing, and it all crashed, and my feelings were hurt, and I had anger and unforgiveness in my heart and my soul and things that I said to people. But all praise be to God that I was able to look back on those times and where I did not do the things I ought not have done, and I try my best to say from this point forward, I will praise your name no matter what, God. Even if things don't go my way, God, I will still praise you, I will still bow down to you, and your praises will be on my lips. <clears throat> David says in verse 1, I will bless the Lord at all times. His praise shall continually be in my mouth. I don't know if somebody can say that without having gone through tough times. And tough times maybe even he brought upon himself. I will bless the Lord at all times. His praise shall continually be in my mouth. Now this is really pretty and flowery. And in a perfect situation, all of us Christians would say, you know, we would be singing those things, but it's just not a reality unless you've really walked through some rough roads. Am I right? To really say that his praise shall continually be in my mouth, but he has looked back and said, I do believe that the Lord is good. And even when my life was threatened and I was scared and I was confused and I made a fool of myself, I now can look and say, I will praise you. Verse 2, my soul makes its boast in the Lord. Let the humble hear it and be glad. Let those who have been humbled hear it and be glad. And then verse 3 is a call for others to participate. Come do what I am doing now. Come learn from me and the mistakes that I have made and walk the path that I am desperately seeking to walk now. Oh, magnify the Lord with me and let us exalt his name together. Praise, verses 1, 2, and 3 is a song of praise. Verses 4, 5, 6, and 7 is a song of protection. He is moving from praise to protection. It says, I sought the Lord, in verse 4, and he answered me and delivered me from all my fears. Those who look to him are radiant, and their faces shall never be ashamed. This poor man cried, and the Lord heard him and saved him out of all his trouble. The angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear him and delivers him. Verse 4 says, I sought the Lord, and he answered me and delivered me from all my fears. Now, I don't know everybody's story in here, but I'm pretty confident that every one of us has had times like I was talking about. Probably looked different, probably felt different. Different scenario where either things fell apart or you found yourself lost in confusion or maybe you blew it. You sinned. And you were just swimming in guilt. Um, or maybe you 
had sought the Lord and you thought you had you knew what you were supposed to do and the bottom fell out fell out from under you. No, no matter what it is, the seeking here um, in verse four, when it says, "I sought the Lord and He answered me," is is a seeking on the on your face seeking, not a how can I get myself through the situation by myself seeking, which is our default, right? When you find yourself in a tough spot or in a confusing spot or in a, even in a spot of sin, our natural reaction is to figure out how do I just get myself through it or how do I fix this or how do I put other people in their place if they've offended me or how do I prove that they're wrong because I'm right you know, I'm going to stand up for myself. I'm going to defend myself. Um, they were wrong, not me. Um, everybody sins this way, right? I'm going to just try to let me just try to ask forgiveness and move on and pretend like nothing happened. I mean, David tried to get himself out of his situation and ended up humiliating himself. There's one commentator who says, you know, God doesn't uh, bless deceit and hypocrisy, and that's what David is doing here. You know, his sin with Bathsheba wasn't his first sin. But he made a fool of himself, and, he, and he, he surely looked back on it with shame. Yet verse 5 here says, Those who look to him are radiant, and their faces shall never be ashamed. Meaning, as I walk forward with the lessons that I have learned that God has shown me in this life, I know that I can walk with confidence because if I look to my God for refuge, and if I look to my God for the avenue of growth and how to walk through the tough spots in life, I can hold my head high and not be ashamed. That the seeking here is not trying to find your own way, but the seeking here is a seeking of prayer and submission and falling on your face saying, God, I don't know, but I know you know. God, and I'm not saying that I will not move forward till you reveal all things to me. Rather, I will trust that you know all things and I will walk forward in righteousness the best way that I can according to what you have revealed to me because that is the standard that I will follow. Even if this doesn't make sense, even if people are legitimately wrong, even if people are sinning against me, even if I'm confused and I just don't understand how it all works out, I will bless the Lord at all times, verse 1. His praise shall continually be on my lips. Praise, 1 through 3. Protection 4 through 7. In verses 8, 9, and 10 is a call to actually put this into practice. Not just here, but to practice it, but to do it. Wouldn't it be awesome in a perfect world if we all just listened to wise counsel and did it? Wouldn't that be nice? Um, I may be a kind of speeding ticket. Okay, I always hated it when my mom, when she was, my mom and dad were teaching me to drive, and I would be exceeding the speed limit, not necessarily speeding, but just exceeding the speed limit. <laughs> and um, my mom would always say, you know, she'd be in the the passenger seat, and she'd like look over, kind of obviously, you know, <laughs> at the speedometer. And she'd be like, I think it's 45 in here. And, you know, did any of your parents do that? You know? um, so she wouldn't like tell me, like, hey, you should slow down. But like, 
If I would have listened to that kind of advice, that's a silly example. We've been told. <laughs> if you look at wise counsel on maybe credit card spending, overspending, debt, sexuality, purity, uh, integrity at work, um, lying, um, wisdom as it has been shared to all of us as it relates to maybe dating um, or just being in the word um, that we haven't listened to. Um, and we learn the hard way, right? A lot of times, not every time, which is the same thing as, le- as life, life lessons. I learned the hard way. I tell you what, when I went through that time here at the church, I had already been through Bible college. Like I had my Bible degree, you know? I had been in ministry for years at that point. I'd been doing my quiet time for a decade and a half. <laughs> you know? I was praying. You know, I knew the things that I was supposed to know, but that didn't mean I was doing it. And as King David at this point is, is, is calling on praise to his God, in praise to his God, and then explaining the protection that his God gives when you do the things that you're called to do in righteous obedience. Verses 8, 9, and 10 is a call. I don't think it's fair to say that he's begging, but he's saying, listen to me. Look at this. Verse 8. Taste for yourself and see that the Lord is good. That his ways are best. That when you walk in the paths of righteousness, you will be led by streams of cool, still water and green pastures. And you shall not be in want. Taste and... But taste. Don't just know, yeah, 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 God's ways are best. Taste it. Taste it in your situation right now. Taste and see that the Lord is good. For blessed is the man who takes refuge in him, it goes on to say. Fear the Lord, you his saints. For those who fear him have no lack. This is strong. Fear means to live in awe and in submission and knowing that God has this in his pocket. And he knows how this is going to work out. Even though a spear was just thrown at me. That God knows, even though I haven't done anything wrong and this guy is chasing me and I'm hiding in a dirty cave, that he knows how this is all going to work out. Fear the Lord, you his saints, for those who fear him have no lack. Verse 10, the young lions suffer, they suffer want and hunger, but those who seek the Lord lack no good thing. This is the voice of a teacher. And I don't want to be overly dramatic here, but but we're the students. This is David who has walked through things in his life, and he is saying, listen to me as I have walked these roads. I have tasted. I have tasted the bitterness, and I have found that it is not good. And I have hung my head in shame as I looked at the things that I have done wrong. Taste and see that the Lord is good. Even the young lions, those people that are out there, that are the most able, that are the most fit, that are the most 
vibrant, who think that they can conquer the world, even they will face these times of falling on their faces in humility. But those who seek the Lord lack no good thing. Those who seek the Lord lack no good thing. That's the first half. Let's look at the second half. It goes to, from 11 to 22. And this is where, where David moves from a song of praise to a song of instruction. Verse 9 says, O fear the Lord. In verse 11, he says, Come, O children, listen to me, and I will teach you the fear of the Lord. So again, David is in the role of a teacher, and he's saying, Listen, listen, listen to me. I mean, I felt like when I was doing student ministry, that's what I wanted to say. Students, I know when I was doing student ministry, I know you're not going to, I'm not going to, you're not going to hear me and you're going to have to fall on your face and you are going to have to taste for yourself that you, the bitterness of this world, but listen to me. Maybe this will save you from shame. This will save you from bitterness. This will save you from roads that I walk down myself. And if you do walk down those roads and if you do fall on your face and if you do find yourself struggling with the sins that you've committed, remember my words and come back to the truth that is God's way. So he is, he is saying, come, O children, speaking proverbially here about children, come, all those who would listen, come, O children, listen to me, and I will teach you the fear of the Lord. Which is what? Three things that he outlines here in verses 13 and 14. Keep your tongue from evil and your lips from deceit. Did David do that? Did David do that? No, he didn't. He sinned. And he's held accountable for it. But he learned from it. We see through the life of David that he is not a perfect man. But God showed himself to be faithful. And in spite of David's sin, in spite of David himself, the Lord still did a work, even though he blew it. Keep your tongue from evil and your lips from deceit. David is speaking from experience that this is the better way. Verse 14, it says, turn away from evil and do good. It says, seek peace and pursue it, which he did with Saul. He sought peace from a man who was not peaceful. He sought peace from a man who was evil. He sought peace from a man who was wrong. He sought peace from a man who was uh, twisting his role as king. I think every single one of us here has had people in authority over us who are wrong and who are doing things the wrong way, who are not working under the rule of integrity, who maybe want you to follow suit Maybe they look down on you because you won't do certain things. Maybe they make fun of you. But David still sought peace and pursued it with this bad dude. And the call on us is the same. To love your enemy. Boy, that, I mean, again, there's so much in Scripture that just sounds like a cheesy greeting card. But it's hard. Taste this and see that it is, it is not easy, but it is sweet. Taste and see. Love those who hate you. 
seek peace and pursue it. If you don't have that person in your life now, it's coming. <laughs> that person who is pursuing you. The person, that coworker who doesn't like you. Maybe doesn't like the fact that you're a believer. Maybe mocks you. Maybe makes, the, makes, makes fun of you because maybe you're not sleeping with your boyfriend or your girlfriend. Um, and seek peace. Don't, defend, don't feel like you have to defend yourself with them at all times. Verses 15 through 22 is a very interesting, yet impact, uh, passionate example of how God will protect his own, but that is not the same as keeping them from affliction. All right? Verses 15 through 22 is a, a beautiful description of how God will protect you but that is not the same thing as keeping you from affliction. I love to travel. Love to travel. Lauren and I have an opportunity to um, go to see some missionary friends in Turkey in a couple weeks. We're going to travel and ask for your prayer, for safety. Um, and even though I've flown a lot, um, I still freak out a little bit when there's turbulence. You know what I mean? Maybe we have flown before. Okay, like I know it's safe. It's safer than driving, blah, 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 blah. I don't know how many times I've been on the on an airplane and you're sitting there, you know, uh, thirty thousand feet, and the plane is like and you're just like ah! in my mind that's what's going on. You know? I, you know, outside I'm kinda like you know, but like I've been on planes I've been on planes where uh, the, the flight attendants have fallen and like I'm just like, today's the day of my death. <laughs> you know, like, this is it. Like, I thought I was going on a mission trip for you, Lord, but no, I'm crashing and dying today. And, like, my, my heart will start beating. And, I mean, I mean, I laugh about it, but there are still times when I, I stop and say, um, God is in control. He has known the day of my death. And if, it, and if, it's, if God has assigned it, uh, then so be it. And I want to be okay with what God has preordained. This isn't a surprise. And if this plane is crashing, um, then I trust my Savior. And, like, those are, again, are nice, easy things to say, but I actually do kind of walk through that at 30,000 feet, you know? And I'm surprised that I have to kill, still, still keep doing that, but I do. And I, I think of, of this text when it talks about how the Lord will protect you, but that doesn't mean you won't have affliction, well, then we're like, what's the point of, 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 of protection then? That, that you will be protected on that airplane. It doesn't mean that you won't have turbulence. And, the, and here's the crazy thing that kind of blows the mind, but yet expounds that there is a certain level of mystery that has to be involved in your faith. That there is still protection even if the plane crashes. That there is still security... If the plane crashes. Look at verse 15. The eyes of the Lord are toward the righteous, and his ears are toward their cry. He's there. He is listening. He is not just this blob out there that exists with this cosmic scale of, of, of karma and if you're good outweighs the bad. No, he is listening to the cry of the righteous. Verse 16. The face of the Lord is against those who do evil to cut off their memory of them from the earth. 
Verse 17, when the righteous cry for help, the Lord hears and he delivers them out of all their trouble. The Lord is near to the brokenhearted and he saves the crushed in spirit. Verse 19, many are the afflictions of the righteous. This is tough. Many are the afflictions of the righteous, but the Lord delivers him out of them all. He keeps all his bones. Not one of them is broken. Affliction will slay the wicked, and those who hate the righteous will be condemned. The Lord redeems the life of his servants. None of those who take refuge in him will be condemned. For, uh, flip to First Peter, if you would. How can the Lord say that we will be delivered, yet at the same time say many are the affliction, afflictions of the righteous, but the Lord delivers him of them all. Well, if you're delivering me, then why are there afflictions? If there are afflictions, why do I need to be delivered? I thought you were sovereign. Aren't you good? Where is this line between you're not doing your job, God, you're not delivering me because I am in the middle of an affliction, yet you said I, I, I'll be saved from them. Where are you now? First Peter. Chapter 2, verses 1 through 5. 1 Peter 2, 1 through 5. Peter here is speaking to a discouraged group of believers who are suffering for their faith. And he is seeking to lift them up with the truth. 1 Peter 2, 1 through 5. He says this, Put away all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy. <clears throat> David... Put away envy and all slander, verse 2. Like newborn infants, long for the pure spiritual milk that by it you may grow up in your salvation. Sanctification here. The the process that God takes us through of being saved. Verse 3. If indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. You see the same verbiage? Taste and see that you need spiritual milk, which means you need to grow in your faith. That suffering brings growth. That growth brings sweetness. And you can't have sweetness without growth. You can't even taste it unless you step out there and practice this. Verse 4, 1 Peter 2. As you come to him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices accepted to God, through Jesus Christ. That when we suffer, that we are made more and more pure. When we go through affliction, God uses that in our hearts and in our minds to show us more and more and more of what we need to see. I know beyond a shadow of a doubt, aside from the amazing blessing of meeting my wife, Lauren, that there are valuable lessons in my growth as a Christian that I would not have learned if I hadn't have gone through that crap in my life that I hope I never have to go through again. I was borderline depressed. I learned from that by God's goodness and in spite of my sin, things that I needed to see that I can look back on and say, you are good and I want to learn from that and follow your paths of righteousness. Oh my God, save me from my past sins and help me to learn 
Um, look at uh, in, in First Peter still, verse uh, chapter three, verse eight. Finally, all of you have unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, a temper, a tender heart, and a humble mind. Do not repay evil for evil. Or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, bless. All right, seek peace and pursue it, like David said. For to this you are called, that you may obtain a blessing. Verse 10 is Psalm 34. 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 10 is a quoting of Psalm 34. Whoever desires long life and good days, which we all do and we're supposed to, let him keep his tongue from evil and his, and his lips from speaking deceit, let him turn away from evil and do good. Let him seek peace and pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, and his ears are open to their prayer. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. Now, continuing in verse 13. Now, who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them. Nor be troubled, but in your hearts honor Christ as Lord, Christ as Lord, as holy. Always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect, having a good conscience so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. For it is better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, for doing, than for doing evil. Verse 18, for Christ also suffered for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh that made alive, that made us alive in the spirit. If you are a Christ follower, your suffering, your affliction, connects you with the suffering of Christ on the cross. First Peter goes on to say it in more and more detail. <coughs> If you are a Christ follower and you are suffering and you have affliction and you seek the Lord and you seek Christ through it, you are united with Christ in his suffering. Because we have a bond when we accept Jesus Christ as our Savior, we are brought and made unified. We looked at this all through Ephesians, that we have been unified with Christ as sons and daughters of God, that we have been brought into likeness of him. And then when we go through these times, we are brought into this unity and are brought into the same sufferings and that we will receive the same glory as those um, who are Christ's followers. Sorry that I went a little long. Um, let me pray for us. Father, I thank you for uh, your truth. I thank you for Psalm 34. Father, I thank you for life lessons and experiences. And Father, may we rely and trust and fear you as we walk through this life. In Jesus' name, amen.